Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Grace is on the Case. I'm Gracelyn Keller, and today I'm covering an international missing persons case that has baffled Australian detectives for over 30 years. And while the family and authorities have gone so long without answers, an inquest actually began this November 2022 in hopes that the case can finally be brought to a conclusion. This is the story of Julie Cutler. On the afternoon of June 19, 1988, a friend rang 22-year-old Julie Cutler and asked if she wanted to see him before work. She declined, telling him that she was already planning on going to the movies. Julie worked at the Parmelia Hilton Hotel, a five-star establishment in Perth, Australia, and there was a staff awards event that night after her shift. So Julie went to the movies and then headed into work. She worked from 6 to 10 p.m. before she and her co-worker Connie Harper changed together and went to the staff party at the hotel's nightclub. According to Connie, Julie changed into a black dress and black patent leather shoes and put her work uniform into a plastic bag. Upon arriving to the event, Connie quickly realized that Julie had come to party. She drank champagne all night, at one point ordering three champagnes and downing them back to back. So it's safe to say that Julie was definitely feeling no pain. As the party wore on, she danced with two young Polish immigrants named Macy Juski and Swiatek, both fellow employees at the hotel. The pair invited Julie and Connie to come home with them, drink more champagne, and watch a film at their apartment, which was not far from the Parmelia. Julie was quite interested in this offer, but Connie was not. Connie politely rejected and suggested that Julie should do the same. She was drunk, and Connie suggested she ought to call it a night. So Julie ended up turning this offer down, much to Connie's relief. The event wrapped up a little after midnight, and Julie was seen leaving the building with an unidentified man and woman walking not far behind her. The exact relationship of these two people to Julie's disappearance is still unclear, and despite police efforts, they have never been able to track them down for questioning related to the case. Now, I'm not saying these people are, like, suspects or anything, but they could have heard or seen something that may prove helpful to the case, and to this day, police would still like the chance to interview them. So Julie and Connie walked through the parking lot together to their respective cars, and at this time it began raining as there was a storm in the forecast that night. Before getting into hers, Julie told Connie that she had plans to go meet someone, but she didn't say who. When asked, Julie only said that it was a, quote, secret, unquote. Sidebar here? If you ever have plans to meet with somebody that you don't know very well or at all, you should always tell somebody. All of the details, guys. Who, where, when, everything. Even if it's in a public place or the situation doesn't seem that dangerous, you never really know who someone is or what they're capable of. And just in general, a rule of thumb that I live by is that it's never a bad idea to tell someone your plans, even if they're with people you do know very well or you're not traveling very far from home. That way, if anything does happen to you, God forbid, someone knows where you were supposed to be, who you're supposed to be with, and when you were supposed to be home. It's never a bad idea to have a loved one clued into your schedule and plans. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but when Julie refused to tell Connie who this mystery person was that she was meeting, she told Julie that it was a bad idea and that, again, she should just go home. 
She then watched Julie get into her car and leave. At the same time, one of the hotel's kitchen staff was standing near the parking lot under a tree to stay dry and was waiting for a ride from his girlfriend. He wasn't like friends with Julie per se, but he had seen her often enough around the hotel to recognize her. She pulled up beside him in her car and rolled down her window and asked if he was okay, and he presumed that this was maybe to offer him a ride now that the storm was picking up. He thanked her, but he said that his ride was on the way, so they said goodbye and Julie drove away, turning onto a road that would take her east downtown into Perth. This conversation, which happened at approximately 12.30 a.m., the morning now of June 20th, was the last confirmed sighting of Julie Cutler. The next morning, Fiona Marr, Julie's mother, arrived home to an empty house. Julie, who had been living with her mother in the nearby town of Fremantle, should have been home from her work party well before her mother. But with no sign of her, Fiona was concerned enough to call Julie's father, Roger, who at this time did not live with his daughter and her mom. She asked if he knew where Julie was, and when he said no, whether it was worth getting the authorities involved. Roger gave her the go-ahead, so Fiona then called the police. Now, Roger said at this point he wasn't really concerned. After all, Julie was an adult, she was 22 years old, and it was honestly normal for him to go weeks without hearing from her. However, he thought that having the police show up might teach Julie a lesson about taking off without telling anybody. But when Julie failed to show up for her next work shift, the tone changed. Friends and family began to worry, and the search for Julie truly began. So over the next 48 hours, loved ones made appeals for Julie or anyone who had seen her to come forward, all the while looking everywhere they could think of, hoping to find a lead. All the different scenarios of where she may be ran through their heads, like the hospital or maybe a spontaneous trip or adventure, and they all held out hope that she was safe. Those hopes were cruelly dashed two days later, though, when a swimmer at Cotslow, Perth's most popular beach, kicked something metallic beneath the surf. Upon further inspection, it was Julie's 1963 Fiat sedan, completely submerged in about 160 feet from the shore, lying upside down on a reef. It was clear to everyone now something awful had happened to Julie. Years later, Roger Cutler said that when he learned her car had been found, he knew he would never see his daughter again. That is just absolutely tragic. I had a tear in my eye reading that. And Roger is really at the forefront of this case. He spends so much time and energy advocating for his daughter and trying to figure out what happened to her throughout this entire time. And he's really just a wonderful advocate for Julie. So lead investigating officer Ron Carey arranged for the car to be detached from the reef and hauled ashore for analysis. The car was completely wrecked, looking like someone had like rolled it at a high speed or crushed it with machinery. The roof was caved in and parts had come loose. The car's hood was missing and the battery washed up along the beach a few days later. The back seat had come out of the body and was actually found bobbing along further down the beach. It was concluded that the car had been dragged, tossed, and turned by powerful underwater turbulence, currents, and a raging surf caused by the storm the night Julie disappeared. The two back doors and the passenger side door were locked and closed. The driver's side, however, was different. The window was down and the door was found slightly ajar. 
There are some sources that state that one of the back doors had actually been unlocked, but this has since been proven false. This is erroneous reporting. Both of the back doors were in fact secured. This misreporting actually led to many people theorizing that someone may have been lying in wait for Julie that night in the back seat of her car. More on that theory later. So the ignition was also found to have been on along with the headlights and the car was in neutral. None of Julie's belongings were in the vehicle either. Forensically, all that was recovered were a few hairs from one of the seats and then the contents of the glove compartment. These were Julie's registration and insurance papers and, strangely, two champagne flutes wrapped in tea towels. Now, these flutes were actually identical to those used at the Parmelia Hotel, which as we know, is the place that Julie was last seen, and they were being used at the party for employees to drink champagne from. And then there was also a handwritten note found inside the car with the name Mike and a local address. So some pretty interesting things found in this glove compartment. It's also been frequently reported that the car's ashtray contained cigarette butts from a brand that Julie did not smoke, but I couldn't find enough on this detail that I feel comfortable saying that was for sure the case. But again, it is out there. It's been reported. Roger actually said that Julie was only a social smoker, meaning she really only indulged at events such as the party she had been at the night she went missing, and also that she typically smoked herbal or clove cigarettes, not like your typical convenience store Marlboros. Some reporting says that the butts in the car were actually menthol, so that would point to them not belonging to Julie, but again, there's just not enough solid reporting on this for me to comfortably say that yes, for sure, menthol cigarette butts were present in her car. And just to play devil's advocate here, the cigarette butts that were found, if any, could have been from the hours, days, or weeks prior to her disappearance. We don't know the last time she cleaned that ashtray out, so there's just no way to prove that they were from that night anyway. There was also no sign of Julie's handbag, purse, or the plastic bag with her work uniform in the car. Connie specifically said that Julie had those items with her the night she disappeared, especially that plastic bag with the uniform. Remember, she watched Julie change out of that uniform and into the dress prior to the party. Their absence was as conspicuous as Julie's and again pointed to some kind of foul play. The car at this point was the only connection to Julie that had been found, and its condition raised more questions than answers. But it being in the ocean in the first place did actually provide some crucial information to investigators. Now, if you'd like to see photos of the car for yourself, head over to gracesonthecasepodcast.com. We've got three photos up there from Reddit that show some of the stuff that I've talked about. So if you're interested in really getting a good visual, head on over to our website. You can see it. Okay, so moving on, the weather that night ended up being a huge factor in this case. The storm played a major role with powerful winds creating waves up to 16 feet high, meaning the usually serene and calm beach at Cotslow was entirely immersed by the ocean. Like there was just no sandy space, just water. This water was lapping in unrelenting waves against a retaining wall that was in front of a historic building called the Cotslow Surf Lifesaving Club, which sits on the land behind the beach. So if you picture this, you got the beach with the sand, and then there's usually like some grass on the land behind the beach that leads up to the beach. This is where that building was sitting. 
And so in those early morning hours, because of the weather, that space that was usually the sandy beach was just completely gone. The water was right up to that retaining wall and that grassy area. And the only thing protecting that building from the water was that retaining wall. And these conditions actually proved helpful for investigators who are certain that the car was not driven onto the sand before being submerged and dragged out to sea. It had to have gone directly into the water because there was no beach to drive onto. So with this in mind, the next question was, where did it go and how? For this, there were only two possible entry points, often artificial rock wall perpendicular to the shore, or over the retaining wall that I mentioned by the surf club building. And this retaining wall could actually be accessed by a service road. So you could drive a car up there on a paved road. If you'd like to see photos for yourself of the beach and these walls and just the general area so you can really picture what I'm talking about, again, head over to gracesonthecasepodcast.com. We'll have them posted there with the car photos. So after examining the car and both walls, investigators are almost certain that the car must have gone over the retaining wall by the surf club building rather than the artificial rock wall where it was then dragged out to the place it was discovered. This conclusion was based on the lack of marks that would have been left on the underside of the vehicle if it had been driven over the artificial rock wall instead of the smooth concrete of the retaining wall. If it had gone over the jagged rocky wall, the car would have been all scraped up, and that just wasn't the case. The fact that the car was in neutral also pointed to this. It would have gotten stuck on the uneven top of the artificial rock wall if it had been in neutral. It would have needed to be in drive and accelerating to make it over that uneven rock wall. But it would have no problem rolling into the ocean over the smooth top of the retaining wall with it being in neutral. There was a small hill right behind the retaining wall, and so investigators realized that the car could have picked up enough momentum to jump the retaining wall simply by rolling down this hill while being in neutral. So another thing, Cotslow is such a popular beach in Perth that there's almost always someone there no matter the time of day. But unfortunately, due to the bad storm that night, investigators are almost certain that nobody was there within that window that Julie was thought to have disappeared, meaning no eyewitnesses. But we do know for sure that there were swimmers at the beach by 5.30 a.m. Cotslow has a very dedicated morning swim group who met daily at this time. And so the fact that none of them saw the car and that nobody else had ever come forward claiming to see the car that morning leaves us with one conclusion. The car went into the water sometime between her last sighting at 12.30 a.m. and the arrival of those swimmers at 5.30 a.m. And despite some lingering suggestions and improbable theories otherwise, investigators are fairly certain that Julie Cutler died in that five-hour window of time, the morning of June 20th, 1988. So despite the concerns for Julie's safety in those first 48 hours and the massive public outreach conducted, there was virtually no valuable information brought forward by the public in those early days and weeks of the case. Now, I have to think that part of this was due to Perth still reeling from the after effects of the Birnies, which were a serial killing couple who abducted and murdered hitchhiking girls in the mid 80s. They were caught and imprisoned by 1986, so two years prior to this. But Perth and the surrounding communities were still dealing with the aftershock of having not one but two active serial killers working in tandem together, and they would be for some time to come. 
Unlike the Birnies victims, though, Julie was an upper middle class woman of means whose disappearance was noticed sooner, covered more urgently, and drew great media interest. However, something to note here is that Perth in the late 20th century was less of a city as it is right now and more of a big town. And it was kind of out in the country away from other larger cities, larger towns at the time. Because of this, rumors traveled quickly, but official information did not flow as easily. Many tips and sightings did come in, including a baffling call to a journalist that claimed to be Julie and asked to be left alone, which was later debunked. But none of these tips drew any closer to a break in the case. The breakthrough that did eventually come wouldn't be until an entire year after Julie disappeared. Around the time of Julie's disappearance, the owner of a late-night kebab shop in Perth found a plastic bag in the shop that had been left by a customer. Inside was a pair of black nylons and a white blouse with the same type worn by the staff at the Parmelia. In fact, the shirt found was made specifically for the hotel, making it totally distinctive to Parmelia employees. After some time, they had tossed the bag in the nylons, but they kept the blouse in their lost and found because they knew it was the uniform worn by hotel staff, and they figured somebody would eventually come back for it. Nobody did, though, and they kind of forgot all about it until they saw the one-year anniversary of Julie's disappearance on the news and the renewed call for information. After this, they realized that the blouse could have belonged to Julie and immediately contacted authorities to turn it in. So while Julie's work uniform, or at least part of it, had been found, the kebab shop owner had no recollection of seeing the black bow tie that was supposed to go with the uniform. Also, there were no bottoms that went with the uniform either. They really only had those nylons and the shirt. Also, it's worth mentioning that the blouse has never been forensically tested, but it's Julie's size and its discovery matched the time frame of when Julie went missing. And it was found in a plastic bag, just like Connie described. The hotel also actually had a system where staff could swap out dirty uniforms for freshly cleaned and pressed ones, and this system would flag any missing items that were never returned. The uniform that Julie had in her possession at the time she disappeared was never returned to the hotel, so authorities are almost certain that that blouse found in the kebab shop was Julie's. And this is the last concrete trace of Julie's movements that has ever been found. The last major break happened in 1996 when a beachgoer at Cotslow found some items in the sand a few miles from where Julie's car was found. There was a tan handbag similar to one that Julie owned, a checkbook from Julie's bank, a diary slash planner notebook from the year 1988, and a branded pen from the Hawaiian group, which owned several restaurants and bars in Perth at this time. The man who originally found the items initially held on to them and even posted an ad in the local paper asking the owner to claim them. He ended up keeping them for an entire year before turning the items into investigators in 1997, realizing that they may be connected to Julie's disappearance. The items were then shown to Julie's family, who said they weren't sure if they actually did belong to her. According to family members, Julie typically journaled daily and mostly used just like regular notepads, like the kind you'd use in school. So the 1988 calendar slash diary notebook that was found wasn't normally what she'd use, and it was also empty aside from some squiggles in the front, the kind that would look like you were trying to get a pen to work. So with all the information that the family gave about her journaling habits, one would expect Julie to have written much more than that given that it was already June and that year was halfway over. 
But again, maybe she wasn't using this diary as her actual diary. Maybe she had a notebook at home that she had been using and this was just a planner so she could keep track of the date. Who knows? The rest of the items that were found were generic enough that nobody could really say for certain that they were Julie's. And unfortunately, all of those items have since been destroyed due to archaic evidence practices from the time. This is really unfortunate in my opinion, as this case is pretty much cold and needs all the evidence it can get. Photos of the items do still exist, but obviously a photo can't be forensically tested like any of the actual items could be. And with the incredible advancement in technology since the 80s, one has to wonder what could have been if we still had those items. Investigators have actually since admitted that most of the physical evidence in this case is lost. In another incredibly frustrating turn, the investigators running point on the case since 2018 discovered that almost all of the original witness statements taken in 1988 and 89 are missing as well. New searches were undertaken around the beach in 2018 when an official cold case review of Julie's case took place, but they did not produce any meaningful discoveries. Lead investigator Ron Carey said in his decades-long career, this is one of the only cases he could not solve, and that the biggest thing he would change in his life is to finally have a conclusion and justice. And that pretty much brings us up to the present, when the inquest I mentioned at the top of this episode began just last month. So this inquest was held in the hopes of finally breaking the case into a conclusion, but honestly, it appears that it has left us more questions than answers. Authorities mentioned some of the characters from this case that seemed like important leads, the two Polish immigrants who invited Julie and Connie back to their apartment, the mysterious Mike from the note in the glove box of Julie's car, but all of these people have been interviewed and cleared over the years, according to police. And again, they did admit that they are missing a lot of physical evidence, including those hairs that were found in the car, and there's just no way to test any of them because they don't have them. There's still the question of who Julie told Connie she was meeting that night, and as far as I can tell, the name of the person or planned location of this meeting has never been found, or at least made public. In my opinion, that information probably died with Julie. But obviously, whoever that was remains a huge question mark in this case. The general consensus of the inquest seems to be that we will probably never know what happened to Julie. Beyond being almost sure that she was killed in that five-hour window the morning of June 20th, the lack of information and evidence remaining makes this case extremely hard to solve. So with that said, there are still quite a few theories floating around despite the fact that a definitive conclusion probably won't ever be made. The most common is that Julie went to the meeting that she told Connie about and that she ended up being the victim of foul play either at the hands of the person that she was planning to meet or by someone she incurred along the way. She and her car eventually ended up at Cotslow, where they were both sent into the ocean. Since the car was dragged and tumbled so much until it came to the spot where it was discovered, it wouldn't be unreasonable to assume that if Julie went into the water that night, she would have been tossed even more violently and taken even further from the shore than her vehicle. Even if she had been alive and conscious upon entry to the water, there would be no way that she could have fought against those strong currents and huge waves from the raging storm. Entering the water would have been a death sentence. We also can't forget the kebab shop. Either Julie or someone connected to her was at the shop sometime around the window she disappeared because her work uniform was found there. 
And then, of course, you have those two champagne flutes found in her glove box that belonged to the Parmelia. One has to wonder why she grabbed those from the party as well. The items that washed up on the beach and ended up being destroyed are also cause for speculation. If they were Julie's, that answered the question of where her purse and diary went the night she vanished. But as the family attested, they couldn't be sure that the items were hers. So the possibility that the ones that did belong to Julie were actually taken or destroyed by someone amidst the foul play that may have occurred is still on the table, and that the ones found on the beach might not have belonged to her at all. There's also the theory that someone was lying in wait in her backseat after the misreporting on which doors were and weren't locked when Julie's car was found. Some people believe that this theory has merit, but honestly, I just don't think this is what happened since all of the doors were locked besides the driver's. And if she did actually have plans to meet up with somebody that night, like she told Connie, that person probably would have come forward to say that she never showed if she had become the victim of foul play by someone hiding in her car prior to this meeting. Another thing that could have happened is that Julie was alone in her car and it rolled into the water by itself. Julie had had quite a bit to drink that night, according to Connie, and if she had been at all impaired by the alcohol in her system, maybe this whole thing was a tragic accident. Julie could have gone down to the beach to meet someone, like she said, or possibly just to enjoy it by herself. Remember, this beach was the most popular in Perth. She could have put the car in neutral and forgot to engage the parking brake. If she was sitting in her car and not paying attention or maybe fell asleep, it could have rolled into the ocean with her inside, trapping her in the violent water. Now, I don't really think this is the most likely scenario, but it's not out of the realm of possibility either. If I had to take a guess, I'd say that she was the victim of foul play at the hands of whomever she was planning to meet that night. I don't think it would have been someone she encountered by chance on the way to this meeting for the same reason that I don't think it was someone lying in wait in her car. Somebody would have come forward to say that they were supposed to meet her, but she didn't show up if that was the case. She left the hotel, possibly taking the champagne flutes so she and this mystery person could share a drink. They met up and maybe went to the kebab shop together, where Julie misplaced her work uniform and ended up at Cotslow. At some point during their time together, I think this person killed Julie. It could have been at the beach or in her car or somewhere else, but I think she was murdered and then set adrift into the raging sea along with her car as a means to get rid of evidence. The car was found and some of her personal items years later, but I believe that Julie herself was pulled far, far out into the ocean and that we will probably never find her. Now, this may not be the exact events that occurred, but through all my research on this case, this seems to me like the most likely scenario. The tragedy in all of it is that we will probably never know what exactly happened or who did it. All we can hope for is that Julie has found peace wherever she is. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review if you enjoyed this episode. As always, all of my source material will be listed on the show's website, gracesonthecasepodcast.com, and you can contact me through there or through Instagram DM at gracesonthecasepodcast for comments, corrections, or suggestions for future cases. Thanks for joining me this week, and I'll see you all next week for a new case. Music